Putin's War and Personalist Authoritarianism, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has reminded the world that dangerous leaders still rule key countries and their incentives and misperceptions drive world events. U.S. policy has shifted dramatically to counter Putin, but to understand the efficacy of those actions, we have to learn how these kinds of countries and leaders work. Fortunately, political scientists have gained new knowledge of authoritarianism, and especially how personalist regimes direct their countries into conflict with others, unconstrained by global institutions. This week, I talked to my Michigan State University colleague, Erica Franz, on a special conversational edition of the podcast. She is co-author, with Joseph Wright and Barbara Geddes, of the Cambridge book, How Dictatorships Work, Power, Personalization, and Collapse, and author of the Oxford book, Authoritarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know. She finds that personalist regimes are more likely to initiate conflicts and suffer from misperceptions in a closed inner circle. Putin's actions follow patterns elsewhere. We talk about the war, the sanctions, the behavior of other regimes like China, the global implications of the rise in personalist authoritarianism, and the direction of research. Here's our conversation. So tell us about your research on personalist dictatorships. Uh, What are they? Personalist dictatorships are dictatorships where power is concentrated in the hands of the leader. So we can look to power dynamics between leader, leaders and their support groups to get a sense of levels of personalism. In some dictatorships, the support groups are military. Um, in other dictatorships, it's a political party. And where power dynamics are tilted in favor of the leader, vis-a-vis either the, the military or the party, we would label it a personalist dictatorship. So classic examples would be Idi Amin of Uganda or uh, Saddam Hussein of Iraq. What are the key things that cause countries to develop personalist dictatorships and why are they on the rise? That is an important question, given that, as you mentioned, we've noted that personalist dictatorships are on the rise. At the end of the Cold War, only about a quarter of the world's dictatorships were personalist. And then if you fast forward to the last year or two, we've seen a big increase where about 40 percent of the world's dictatorships are personalist. So we can certainly point to geopolitical dynamics as important here, where um, the end of the Cold War led to kind of a dismantling of the traditional authoritarian system. There was no longer as much external support for communist parties, let's say. Um, We also saw a reduction in support, external support for military professionalization. So both of those things we think probably played a role, but um, that, you know, in the end, that answer to that question is, is somewhat um, a hole in the literature. We know we have a good sense of the factors that help predict a personalist dictatorship. So, um, for example, recent research has shown that uh, when leaders come to power, supported by groups that are somewhat fractured or weak, we're going to be more likely to see personalization in the years to come. So for example, if you have a seizure of power that is a junior officer-led military coup, that's a really good indicator that we're going to see personalism because a junior officer leading a coup generally reflects a military that's not very well organized or um, professionalized. At the same time, if you see a leader come to power um, or seize power backed by a party, a political party that is pretty weak, Oftentimes we see this when the leader has recently created a political party. That is also a good indicator that we're gonna see personalism. Uh, And a nice example there would be Hugo Chavez in Venezuela who created this 
movement, essentially, just as a springboard for his own political career. And when we see that sort of thing happening at this at the time of the seizure of power, these groups are just unlikely to be able to push back at the leader's efforts to consolidate control. Um, and over time, we also see that personalization begets more personalization. So those that that power concentration is just going to be more likely to intensify as the years uh, of the leader's tenure progress. And what about consequences? Why uh, are these uh, regimes so dangerous? This is the major reason why we should care that there's been this huge uptick in personalist dictatorship. The overwhelming message that comes out of the research is that personalist dictatorships are bad. <laughs> and not just for the domestic outcomes, like not just for the quality of life of the citizens who rule under them, but also for the international community. So domestically, personalist dictatorships are more likely to be corrupt. They're more likely to repress their citizens. Um, They're more likely to govern over periods of economic disaster. All sorts of negatives come with this concentration of power. And this is precisely because there aren't any actors at home who can hold these leaders accountable for poor choices um, and constrain them. And then in the international arena, this is all playing out before our eyes right now with what's happening with the Russian uh, war on Ukraine, in that personalist dictatorships are more likely to be aggressive in their foreign policy. They're more likely to make foreign policy mistakes. Uh, They're also more likely to ratchet up disputes and dig their heels in. And a lot of the reasons why is that, again, they don't face much accountability at home. So they can engage in these risky and adventurous foreign policy efforts without fearing that there's going to be a domestic backlash, uh, like some of their counterparts might face in a more collegial uh, form of authoritarianism. And then I can get into the dynamics related to their inner circle, but they often make these unwise choices because they have purged any individuals who might tell them the truth about things uh, and might provide some insight that oh, maybe this is a bad idea. So instead, you know, we see a bunch of uh, yes men in these regimes. So how well does uh, Putin fit uh, with this model of personalist uh, dictators uh, and how well do his recent actions uh, fit in with what would be expected? Uh, Is there anything the research can tell us about what he might hope to gain or why he's so immune to the consequences? Yeah, the sad part is that all of his behaviors are completely in line with what the research says about personalist rule. Now, on some levels, the, the decision to wage this um, intense of a form of aggression caught most of the world by surprise. But if we follow, you know, the research in international relations on personalism suggests that they are the most likely to initiate conflicts with other states. They are particularly likely to get into conflicts with democracies. Um, they're more likely to do, make unwise foreign policy choices all of the evidence suggests that this was a huge miscalculation on the part of Putin. And it really reflects the fact that the information environment in his regime is poor. And again, this is consistent with what the research shows about this particular form of authoritarianism. The important thing to note too, is that personalist dictators are often really unpredictable in their behaviors. So when trying to anticipate what Putin is going to do or um, you know, what, what other personalist authoritarians are likely to do in the years to come, the major message is that they're unpredictable. So one positive of personalism 
is that because these leaders don't face many constraints at home, they don't have to be quite as concerned with saving face. So we could be potentially more likely to see, uh, you know, a, a large departure from um, from a stated foreign policy goal in personalist dictatorships, more so than in other regimes. But that said, they because they surround themselves by individuals who provide them with poor information, uh, they tend to become more paranoid of, over time. Um, they tend to become more dis distrustful of the elites who are around them, precisely because of the fact that they've gotten rid of anyone who has spoken truthfully about things. So you get this information environment that is really toxic, uh, where there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and so we see a lot of unpredictable behaviors, often things that we would we might label as irrational. I am not really persuaded by the idea that there's certain personalities that are going to be more likely to do these things. Rather, these these guys are a product of the environment that they created, which is going to foster you know, uncertainty, paranoia, and so forth. So in terms of what's going to happen next in Russia, there are a lot of indicators that Putin is going to double down uh, precisely because he isn't necessarily receiving great information from his uh, from people who could weigh in accurately about the situation. And because to the extent that he doesn't face any pushback from within the elite and from below, um, he would be likely to, to stay the course. So far, all signs are pointing towards an intensification of the conflict. And what about the international response? Is this how uh, the other countries usually respond to uh, personalist uh, dictators? Are there signs from the research about whether that international response will be effective, like whether sanctions are effective against uh, personalist dictators uh, or what, how they will respond to adversaries uh, being helped from outside uh, militarily. You know, on the one hand, the decision to do this, you know, brazen act of aggression in Ukraine caught the world by surprise, but I think it's also caught the world by surprise how concerted and broad the international response has been to, uh, to the war. We are not used to seeing sanctions of this sort. Uh, we're used to seeing sanctions that are kind of a slap on the wrist and you know, somewhat ineffective. Instead, largely because of the brazenness of the, the decision to wage this, this war, there is broad support for punishing uh, the Rus Russia and the Russian elite for this, for this act. And the research does show that sanctions are more likely to be effective when they target personalist dictatorships. And that's because this specific type of authoritarianism has uh, relies on a very narrow group of individuals to stay, stay and float. Not to say that ordinary citizens don't matter, but that really politics is happening at this elite level. And to the extent that sanctions can target members of Putin's inner circle, which thus far it appears that they're trying to do, uh, then this could put the squeeze on Putin um, and, you know, potentially lead to pressures that uh, that will eventually lead to his ouster. I would like to add the caveat, though, that oil wealth can kind of distort some of these things because, you know, oil rich places like like Russia give dictators, personalist dictators, extra avenues for for revenues. So the decision to everything related to fuel and fuel exports and so forth and decisions to, to cut off the Russian regime from uh, natural resource revenue will be particularly important to look at.
And are we learning anything about other autocracies uh, from uh, this uh, conflict? Uh, I noticed that Turkey and Hungary, some autocratizing countries, um, have uh, condemned uh, the war, but uh, we, maybe the overall international alignment is still autocracies uh, uh, more likely to defend others. Anything we could say about that? You know, it's really tempting to say that there's this club of autocracies and they're all on the same team. But the truth is, we don't really know that much about how these different uh, regimes align with each other. In some instances, they seem to all be on the same page and against the West and liberal democracy. But in other instances, they, they don't behave in predictable ways. And I think at the core, these governments, like all governments, are going to do what's in their own strategic interests and political interests. So if it's in the regime's interest for there to be global stability, then they're going to be reluctant to embrace Putin's action because it's going to destabilize the world, both in terms of the violence it creates, but also for the economic consequences. So if these leaders don't see it as in their interest to support Putin's venturism, then they're going to have more of a muted response. But we're also seeing some interesting democracies not doing much. Uh, India is the one that comes to mind. So I think it's like, you know, these economic and political interests really outweigh everything else in terms of, you know, values and um, support for any one particular model of political rule. The other the other thing that kind of uh, is important to mention is that we also talk about, you know, China and Russia trying to export their model of authoritarianism. But there the picture is also pretty complicated because in some instances, particularly with China, the things that it's exporting are in its financial interests. So a lot of digital technologies, for example, that could be used to help other dictatorships, you know, model the Chinese, the Chinese form of authoritarianism. Well, those same, you know, it's in China's interest to continue to sell these products because it helps them economically. So it's very, it's very tricky to disentangle motivations. And, um, you know, that's why I'm somewhat reluctant to say that, okay, just because these two regimes are personalists, they're gonna be jumping on board with each other. Personalist leaders make for very unpredictable partners in general. So I think that it, it, it's very difficult to say with any certainty that that would be what would be going on. So let's dig into that a little bit more because people are seeing uh, this as perhaps uh, lessons for China and Taiwan. Uh, to what degree is China a personalist regime and what are the similarities and differences that might impact their relationship and their, the similarity of their actions? So China has traditionally been led by you know, a dominant party since Mao, and the you know, Chinese Communist Party. And the um, overall model there has tended to be one of more collegial decision making. We don't see leaders uh, leaders govern you know forever there. They tend to have a process of succession. Since Xi Jinping came to power, China has moved in a different direction, and some would say has returned to the the Mao era, era of um, governing style. And consistent with the research, as power has grown more personalist under uh, Xi Jinping, we've seen more repression, and we've also seen more foreign policy venturism. So all of the negatives that we typically associate with personalism, we're starting to see signs of in China. However, it's important to note that the levels of personalism uh, today in China do not compare to what we see in Putin's Russia. So it is certainly the case that concentration of power has happened, but it's not to the same degree as in some of these other truly personalist contexts. So the positive there is that there 
the evidence suggests that we would see more um, predictable behavior coming out of the PRC than in more of a concentrated Putin-esque type of situation, which means that there should be a greater opportunity for predictable decision-making. Um, and looking to China's posturing towards Taiwan, we would expect that there might be some, some learning happening here that um, these sorts of foreign policy decisions to that sacrifice you know, the, the integrity of, of these locations would be met with a, a harsh response. Now, to be clear, um, if China were to grow more aggressive in its, in, its, um, in its positioning toward Taiwan, I don't think it would even come close to the sorts of aggression we've seen with Russia towards Ukraine. And really it was the, the brazenness of this decision that led to this huge backlash and international sanctioning. So, you know, I, we have to be careful in terms of, this, of, of the types of foreign policy venturism we would be looking at. In general, though, my sense is that this is, this is like a pivotal moment for global politics in that all the world's watching and everyone wants to know, you know, if, if a dictator behaves in this way, what's going to happen? And from my perspective, the overwhelming message has been that a lot is going to happen and that, you, you know, the international community can uh, unite in ways that push back against um, this form of aggression. So to me, it's a, it was a very important that we saw this sort of response and that it's going to send a very powerful message to all of the world. Everybody's paying attention. So um, to me, that's one positive that's come out of this. So Russia has also uh, cracked down on all remaining independent media and has a strong state media apparatus and is building one sort of all over the world or was building one. How uh, similar is that uh, to other personalist uh, dictatorships and what role does it play? So dictators since the end of the Cold War have been trying more and more so to mimic democracies. And in, there are many reasons for doing so. One is that it's it's a lot easier to rule with a subtle hand than with a heavy one. There are fewer costs to pay. So, you know, for some time in Putin's Russia, there has been somewhat more of an open media environment. Um, you know, they've had opposition groups that have been able to um, voice their, their views to a limited degree. Over time, however, we're, we've been seeing that, that space restricted. And then particularly, right now, there's been a huge effort to silence any independent media. Now, this could come back to bite, because I heard today whispers that, um, that, they, that the Russian government was shutting down Instagram, for example. All of these things that ordinary Russians rely on in their daily life, uh, they're going to make a note of it when suddenly these, this is restricted. And the reason why, why that matters is that it's true that these regimes don't need tons of popular support to maintain power. But if we have this perfect storm of elite fissures, international pressures, and mass discontent because the, the information space has grown so closed, then this could lead to uh, Putin's ouster. Gut response, the knee-jerk response is going, going to be, okay, if there's public criticism to me, I'm gonna shut down that space. But that can be a very risky strategy for dictators because it can lead to a backlash that is not anticipated. So you also wrote the book, Authoritarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know. So what does everyone need to know? 
First of all, that is part of a series called What Everyone Needs to Know. I'm not proclaiming that I know everything about um, authoritarianism. But in that book, one of the that book is really geared towards a, a more general audience. And one of the major messages is that authoritarianism has changed quite a bit since the end of the Cold War, which is something I already talked about, where today's dictatorships really are trying to mimic democracies and at least feign some sort of more open and participatory environment. And that is consequential for a number of reasons. One is that, you know, sometimes observers can get fooled into thinking that a country is a democracy when it's not. And all the positive uh, outcomes that we might associate with democracy are just not going to be present in those contexts. It also has really challenged democracy promotion efforts because the research shows that these, this effort to feign democracy ends up prolonging authoritarian survival. So there's a lot of research that shows that the dictatorships that do these things, that have multi-party elections and that uh, allow opposition groups to have some limited political influence actually last in power longer than those that just use brute force to stay afloat. Okay, so this makes it difficult for observers to know whether these indicators of political liberaliz liberalization, like a more open and participatory environment, we don't know whether those are actually true signs of efforts to move towards democracy, or if they're indicators of a savvy authoritarian regime. So this development has really complicated democracy promotion um, because it's, it's very difficult from an outsider's perspective to know whether we are really seeing authoritarian entrenchment or some sort of sign of political opening. Uh, what about Western political elites? Are there things they still don't know about authoritarianism or personalism that they, they should? If you had five minutes with uh, Biden or Macron or uh, Johnson, what, what, what do they need to know? I think that this latest um, foreign policy crisis has really told the world a lot about personalism. And, you know, it's unfortunate that it took something like this for it to happen, but We've been, scholars have been sounding the alarm bell for the last couple of years that personalism is on the rise. And the general message is that, I mentioned this earlier, but personalists are not predictable partners. It's tempting to label their behaviors as irrational or crazy, but as they as mentioned also, they really are a product of their environment. So the one thing to know about personalists is that, you, is that they are very unpredictable. You can't, you, you know, the, the levels of uncertainty are very high. And you cannot assume that they have access to accurate information about themselves, about their military forces, about public sentiment. It's tempting to think that they do, but they often have very limited and distorted information channels. The other thing that I would note is that uh, personalism is also increasing in democracies. And we are starting to, the authoritarian politics uh, world and the personalization of politics, world, and democracies, those two literatures have really been divorced from uh, each other. But we're starting to see more of a synergy between those two fields, which is really important given that personalism and democracies, when we see leaders supported by parties that basically exist to promote their own candidacy, is also harmful for a variety of outcomes. So to the extent that... Um, you know, we can pay attention to this dynamic in democracies. I think it will also be important in helping to reverse the contemporary backsliding wave. And how about uh, implications for specific policy decisions that are being made now about how uh, to arm Ukraine, about uh, whether to expand 
swift sanctions to other banks, things like that. Are there uh, lessons that are actionable right now? Well, I'm not a military expert, so I'm not totally sure about what the precise, you know, the best military response would be. Overwhelmingly, it seems like a direct confrontation with Russia through something like a no-fly zone would be a bad choice. Uh, that the, the best response would be to help Ukraine externally. Um, I mentioned this, but this is a really big moment for the world, in, not only in terms of uh, you know, protecting Ukrainians, but also for sending a signal about resolve about the, you know, the alliance's resolve to protect democracy, about what the consequences are for, um, for this sort of behavior. So to the extent that the West can provide Ukraine with as much military assistance as possible, that to me seems really important. The same thing is true with the sanctions. So as a, the sanctions have been far greater than most observers would have anticipated. And that is going to be sticking to this is going to be particularly important. And also as much as it's going to be very difficult for domestic audiences to swallow, we really need to cut off Russian uh, revenue from natural resources. That It's going to lead to higher gas prices. It's going to have ripple effects throughout the global economy, but that is really going to be pivotal to really put the squeeze on the Russian elite and create some more fissures so that they can no longer tolerate uh, Putin in office and so that we might see him pushed out. You mentioned this is a potential uh, turning point for the um, future military uh, endeavors. What about these broader trends that you've mentioned uh, towards we're having more autocratizing than democratizing countries and we're uh, seeing increased personalization? If we look back uh, 10 or 15 years from now to this, will we see it as a, as a potential change in those trends? There are uh, very few indicators that this tide is going to reverse course. And scholars are kind of scrambling to catch up and figure out what's going on. There is, I'm working on a book project right now where we're looking at levels of personalism and democracies and all the evidence suggests that it elevates the risk of democratic backsliding and collapse. So one of the messages that seems to be coming out of all of these literatures is that when leaders bargain or operate with support groups that are fractured and poorly institutionalized, that it enables concentration of power. An implication would be that party building is important. And party building has been challenged in the new digital era where politicians no longer need these well-organized parties to win office. They can just go to social media. Uh, so any efforts to kind of, kind of address that challenge, I think will be pretty important. I point to El Salvador as kind of the classic case of what we're likely to see of in the years to come, where the leader Bukele just created this Nueva Ideas movement. It only exists to promote his candidacy and help him win office. He used social media extensively to get his brand out. And now we're seeing concentration of power occur under his rule because that party, this movement, doesn't really have any capacity or incentive to push back against an executive power grab. So those are the things I think we should be attuned to. And researchers in, in particular um, need to dedicate more efforts to trying to better understand some of these uh, underlying dynamics. So catch us up on the sort of revolution of, in research on uh, autocracies. Uh, we used to think that it was very difficult to collect any meaningful data, um, but it seems like we're collecting more and more uh, across the world. So how did, how did that happen? And what is it telling us? Well, 
on the one hand, some of these authoritarian systems did open up a little bit. And since the end of the Cold War, we don't see as many North Koreas anymore. We see more, more and more so regimes like uh, Venezuela or, or Russia. So that has opened up abilities for scholars to research um, political dynamics in these systems. That said, it still remains a risky task. Occasionally, from time to time, we do hear of academics being arrested by authoritarian governments and so forth. So it's definitely not the case that it's totally safe, but that opening has enabled um, better data collection efforts and so forth. Um, we also have improved in terms of data. So there was observable data that existed, but scholars were just not that interested in authoritarian politics until like the last 15 years or so. And now we've seen a big explosion where we have authoritarian politics is a large field in, um, in comparative. So we have data sets that measure easily observable things like does an opposition party exist? Are elections regularly held? But we really lack some of the more nuanced data that we need. <laughs> and I'm hoping that in the years to come, you know, graduate students that are doing their dissertation work get more involved in some of the fine-tuned data collection efforts that would be valuable, um, particularly res with respect to things like civil society organizations and um, elite identity. We don't totally know who some of the elites are in dictatorships. We don't know, you know, numbers in terms of the size of their support groups and all sorts of little fine-tuned information that I think could really advance the field. So we also just had an intervention from the old guard uh, with John Mearsheimer uh, claiming that uh, Putin uh, was indicative of, of old uh, realism and predictable. So uh, give us a sense of how the how theories have changed uh, also in, in political science. Uh, are we still in sort of framework wars uh, or are we um, have we moved on? Uh, well, I mean, I think are we in framework wars? I think that in terms of way in which we think about politics, it was pretty clear that during the Cold War that there, you know, there were kind of predictable modes of behavior and that everything changed since. The question is, from, from my perspective, as someone who looks at authoritarian politics, are we in the middle of a, of a reversion back to that Cold War um, sort of state? And by that, I mean, there are some subtle indicators that uh, dictatorships are <laughs> moving away from this uh, pseudo-democratic style that I just talked about that we've seen over the last 30 years or so, where brute force is something that they think is going to be tolerable. And again, we were seeing a lot of that in Russia. And my colleagues and I were wondering, okay, are we going to start seeing more iron, iron fists here in autocratic environments? And are they going to be able to get away with it? So again, this just kind of points back to this moment right now being so pivotal in terms of what happens next for Putin and whether there's a solid signal that brute force domestically and overseas is not pal palatable to audiences, um, both within dictatorships and within democracies. There's a lot of questioning of whether there's been a tide of citizens no longer trusting democracy and no longer viewing it as valuable. So, I'll, you know, and I'm somewhat suspicious of some of these, <laughs> of, of some of these findings, but, you know, it is a big moment for um, the global community to demonstrate that democracy can deliver and that 
you know, there are a lot of risks and costs associated with authoritarianism. And what still don't we know about authoritarianism? Uh, and what are the most, yeah, what are the most important questions remaining? Oh, there's so much we don't know. <laughs> there's so much we don't know. I talked about this idea that, you know, there's a narrative in, in academia and in the mainstream media that China and Russia were trying to export their model of authoritarianism. That's a big question mark to me. And it would be a nice area of future research to better understand efforts to diffuse, uh, diffuse specific models of authoritarianism. Um, to what extent are we seeing intentional activities to try to spread authoritarianism? Another area of future research in, I think has to do with the extent to which public opinion um, influences authoritarian politics. My sense is that it really plays very little role, but we don't really have a very good understanding of some of these uh, relationships and the ways in which mass sentiments interact with elite politics to influence outcomes in dictatorships. And what should we be looking for in the days ahead uh, in Russia for signs that that regime might be changing? What is going on at the top level, particularly with members of the security apparatus? So are there any indicators of, um, of discontent? We've seen a little bit of it more than normal in Putin's Russia, where a handful of very influential Russians have said subtle things that indicate that they don't think this was a good choice. So to the extent that this, this continues to spread, that these, that these um, indicators continue to surface, I think that's very important. And again, I mentioned, we've seen a couple of, of elites outside of the security apparatus indicate that they didn't think this was the greatest choice. So are we going to see that within the security apparatus? That to me is a big focal point. Um, you know, I've heard some rumors that uh, there's been some activity within the within within the security forces with some influential members being put on house arrest and so forth. Those things are unverified, but that to me is a big focal point. And what about in the post-Soviet world? More oddly, is are there uh, big trends in personalization or dem democratization, uh, and any signs that the, that may be trending in one direction? We have seen a rising tide of personalism in democracies and in dictatorships. And I don't see any indicators that this is going to reverse course, even should Putin come out of this looking like a big failure and, and this decision appearing really unwise. I don't think that that's going to ebb this movement towards weak organizations and concentration of power. However, I think it does send a message. It, it has the potential to have ripple effects throughout the region, particularly in places like Belarus, which has, you know, kind of been propped up by, uh, in recently actually, um, has cozied up with, with uh, Russia, as well as other places where Putin has tried to exert influence. If his regime unravels, then some of the longstanding authoritarians and those uh, in Central Asia have the potential to uh, be very vulnerable as well. So what's next for you? I think you mentioned you're working on uh, personalism and in, in democracies. So what are the biggest uh, trends there that we should know about or anything else you want to tap? The big trend is that uh, leaders are increasingly getting elected in democracies backed by parties that they created. 
And the general message is that this is harmful for uh, executive constraints and eventually for uh, democratic governance. So better understanding why this is happening is really at the forefront of my mind right now. Um, and we don't really have a strong sense. It's mainly, it's mainly just, uh, you know, what are, what are people's gut instincts? So to the extent that we can better understand some of these driving forces of personalism and democracies, I think that'll be very consequential and important for reversing the, the current wave. So that's what's on my mind. <laughs> and uh, this sort of crossing over between international relations and comparative politics, uh, how typical has that been in the field? Um, and what are the gains from, I guess, those sets of researchers talking more to each other? To the extent that researchers can talk to one another, it is a good thing. And it has led to some really interesting, uh, really interesting research in, author- in the, the world of authoritarian politics, where we have a number of scholars that have done some really really important work on how different types of dictatorships behave in the conflict arena, for example. And um, so to the extent that those sorts of synergies can continue, I think it will be a real positive for political science. I already mentioned that there's a lot of opportunities for researchers who do work on um, personalism in, in democracies, like in political campaigns and in the media landscape. There's a lot of potential for those research to, researchers to start engaging with those of us who do work on um, the dynamics of political change uh, to help us all better make sense of what's happening. So, yeah, to the extent that we can bridge these divides, um, th- that's a good thing. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available biweekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this episode, I would recommend these prior episodes. U.S. Democratic Decline in Comparative Perspective, How Debt Finance Leads to War and Deficit Spending, Does the Public Respond to Threats to Democracy, The Role of Political Science in American Life, and When Partisans Endorse Violence. Thanks to Erica Franz for joining me. Please check out How Dictatorships Work and Authoritarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know, and then listen in next time. <laughs>